Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So, without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I have a special guest joining me in who is an expert on metabolic health, hormones, and anti-aging modalities. So joining me in on the show is Chandler Mars. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Chandler, do you want to let my listeners know a little bit about, I guess, your story and your background? Uh, well, it's long and complicated. Um, I started my work in neuroendocrinology, uh, hormones in the brain, uh, particularly in perinatal women, pregnant and postpartum women. Um, and following that, somehow I wound up in the mitochondria. And from there, my latest research has involved the role of nutrients and the functioning of the mitochondria. Hmm. Amazing, amazing. So I guess maybe... Do you want to explain to my listeners just the basics of, you know, the mitochondria and some of its major functions in the body? Well, so mitochondria are the 
powerhouses of your cells. Uh, they produce something called adenosine triphosphate, ATP, something we all learned about probably in high school biology and pretty much put in our back pocket and moved along and figured that as long as we provided our body with sufficient food, meaning we weren't starving ourselves, that the mitochondria would do their thing and, and produce uh, ATP. Well, it turns out they need more than just uh, sufficient calories and macronutrients. They need micronutrients, vitamins and minerals. Um, and a lot of us are deficient in those vitamins and minerals uh, because of the diets that, that we choose to consume. Diets that, while fortified with vitamins and minerals, also carry with them a high carbohydrate burden and a high toxin burden. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, uh, the mitochondria do not produce sufficient energy to power all of the functions that we need them to power. And that's where you get disease processes uh, in the lack of energy, but also in the adaptive processes that take place to compensate for that lack of energy. And that's been the body of my research and, and writing for the last, I don't know, five or six years. Mm, amazing, amazing. And one area that I guess you're quite well known for is in the field of um, vitamin B1 and how that, how that impacts mitochondrial function. So do you want to let my listeners know maybe a little bit of background around vitamin B1 and I guess its major functions associated with energy production? So uh, vitamin B1, also called thiamine or thymine, uh, depending upon who you're speaking with, um, was the first B vitamin that was synthesized back in, I think, the 20s or 30s. But its deficiency was recognized centuries ago. The conditions that it causes, you may have heard beriberi or Wernicke's encephalopathy, were recognized uh, as early as seventh century China. The physicians there were writing about it, and they the same symptoms that we see today, they were writing about that uh, all the way back then. And so thymine, the reason it's so important is because it is geographically located at the entry points to mitochondrial energy metabolism, um, the entry points for carbohydrate metabolism, um, in the paroxysm for the entry point to fatty acid metabolism and at an important juncture in amino acid metabolism. It is also critical to several of the enzymes within the mitochondria such that when it is deficient, everything else goes crazy and has to compensate. Unlike all of the other vitamins, it, because of its its location um, and its rate limiting step, uh, it does in fact limit the rate of ATP production, and so it causes uh, deficiencies in other vitamins and minerals and and just a host of problems. Um, and one of the the key things I think that is is missing in all of the conversations we have about vitamin one B one is that it, um, it's considered rare uh, deficiency in, in developed countries where food fortification has been in place since the 40s. Um, and, but it's not rare because a lot of the foods we eat um, demand more thymine than we are getting in those foods and carry, as I said, a 
uh, heavy toxicant burden. So a lot of the disease processes we see, all the metabolic dysfunction we see that just pervades or is endemic in, in Western countries, the diabetes, the heart disease, um, even Alzheimer's, which is now considered another form of diabetes, evolve relative to, I believe, lack of, of thymine and other nutrients in, in the diet. Mm, awesome. Okay. That was... Um... Yeah, really, really well explained. One element there, I guess, um, that we can sort of touch on or expand upon is the, the influence of a high-carbohydrate diet and how that will automatically increase the body's need for vitamin B1. So do you want to explain why that's the case? Well, think about, you know, you've got to metabolize those carbohydrates. And um, thymine is at the entry point of glucose metabolism. Uh, a couple of the enzymes that it takes, uh, that it is involved with, it's called the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, it's a complex of enzymes, is, is at the, the entry point. It takes pyruvate and converts it to acetyl-CoA, and uh, that's the first step in getting into the mitochondria. And when it is shunted, then stuff goes off into secondary and tertiary pathways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the initial secondary pathway is, is through uh, what's called the pentose phosphate pathway uh, and the transketolase enzyme. Um, again, thymine dependent. Um, and so when those don't work, they end up in these other what are called salvage pathways. And those salvage pathways don't burn as cleanly, if you will. So they produce a lot more uh, reactive oxygen species and a lot more other toxicants that the body has to deal with. And so then you get this kind of cycle, more toxicants, less energy, more toxicants, less energy, more toxicants, less energy, and so on and so forth, until you've got disease. Mm, Okay, great. And one element there I want to sort of touch on is, I guess, people talk about... um, when we're in a high glucose oxidating state or oxidative metabolism, mm-hmm. we're generating more CO2. So do you want to sort of expand, is that a, is that a good thing and, and what's that role in energy metabolism? Well, that's a different reaction altogether. Um, and it's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It depends on, on whether or not you have the capacity to further metabolize everything. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's not... One of the things that I don't like about the way we talk about health and disease is this binary either or function that that this metabolite is good and that metabolite is bad. It it's not that simple. There's there's gradations of good and bad and and there are times when all of these adaptive mechanisms, one of the adaptive mechanisms you get when thymine is 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 reduced is you get the induction of what's called um, hypoxia-inducible factors, HIFs, or proteins. Uh, yeah, HIFs. <sighs> hypoxia-inducible factor proteins. There we go. Um, and that is is because you're not able to consume molecular oxygen particularly well. And so you get this state of hypoxia uh, based on just a nutrient deficiency. It's not like a, an ischemic hypoxia or an obstructive hypoxia. There's plenty of oxygen floating around, but the mitochondria, mitochondria can't use them to produce energy. So when those HIFs become stabilized, then they initiate all sorts of other reactions. Now, those reactions are necessary to maintain oxygen homeostasis. And they are there because we want them there 
acutely. What happens is, is when you get this system going on chronically, you get disease, you get inflammation, you get cancer, you get all of these other uh, uh, end products relative to this molecular hypoxia. And so while in and of themselves, you can't say that the hips are good or bad. They're necessary. It's a necessary part of, of biology. You wouldn't want not to be able to react to hypoxia. It would kill you. So um, as with everything, there's there's good and bad. It, yep. It's complicated. <laughs> as always with science, it's always... Uh... Always it, it's not an either or. It, it's never an either or. And I, and I don't like that. We do that with deficiency, nutrient deficiencies too, and diseases. Everything is to a marker. You know, if, if you have X levels of this nutrient, you are healthy. But just one animal less, yeah. and you are unhealthy by definition. And that just makes absolutely no sense because it's a gradation uh, on that scale. And then that doesn't take into consideration the individual, the host reactions, while mm. X percentage of people may be considered healthy with this amount of, of thymine or, or B12 or any other, individually, it you may need a heck of a lot more. And, and so I think we need to get past these kind of binary descriptions of, of disease. Mm. I guess um, something that also came to my mind is if you were to, I guess, talk to someone and explain to them, hey, this is what you should do to respect and improve um, and support your mitochondrial function, what obviously we know that Correcting nutrient deficiencies is important um, and exercise and things like that. But if you were to suggest to someone, here's what you should do to really look after your mitochondria, what would you tell them? Well, I, I don't think we can minimize eating real food and, and moving. Those two things are, are critical and we don't do those very well. Uh, we tend to eat uh, uh, you know, conventionally grown produce, which is laden with pesticides and then product processed foods, which has all sorts of chemical additives and all that, that's not food. Um, that carries a, a high, higher toxic burden. Um, and then, of course, movement. But if we were going to uh, look at how to repair mitochondria uh, individually, I, there's, a, there's a chart in chapter three of our book that uh, outlines all of the um, uh, nutrients needed to make the wheels of the mitochondria turn. Um, I would go down and around that circle and, and see what you need. And, and you may need uh, several of them. You may need, you know, only one or two. Uh, but if you don't replenish those nutrients, um, then you're not going to be able to be healthy and, and, and or heal from whatever it is you're trying to do. But the flip side of that is you've got to remove the toxicants um, because no amount of vitamin or mineral supplementation is going to replace a toxic diet, a toxic environment, you know, all of those, those toxic burdens that, that modern living uh, thrusts at us. Mm, that's great. That's great. I guess um, then let's sort of circ circle back to vitamin B1 in relation to uh, chronic fatigue syndrome because I do remember seeing one study where they did use high dose, quite high mm -hmm. doses of vitamin B1. And I remember some quote in the study saying a complete amelioration of fatigue was seen in 
I don't know, 60% of patients. It, it, yeah, it's very common. Um, fatigue is probably the cardinal symptom of mitochondrial dysfunction, whether it be mediated by thymine or any other variable. If your mitochondria are not producing ATP, you're going to be fatigued. That's, you know, it just, just is. And so when we look at fatigue as a, a kind of a benign symptom, but it's really an indication of poor mitochondrial function. Um, so with regard to the high-dose thymine, um, high-dose is, again, it's not a, a um, necessarily a straightforward concept because by definition, anything over a milligram a day is high-dose. So, yeah, so you, you have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, that is the bare minimum. It's 1.2 and 1.4 milligrams per day is what the, the recommended daily amount of, of thymine is. It hasn't been changed in 80 years. And even when they established it 80 years ago, there was research saying that this really is not uh, sufficient to promote health. It, it was simply the bare, absolute bare minimum to to prevents frank deficiency. Um, and so um, with regard to high dose, individuals who have been um, chronically ill, uh, where their mitochondria affect, which their mitochondria are always impacted, um, are likely to need much higher doses of thymine and other nutrients to recover than would be suggested by either the RDAs or even standard vitamin supplements. What those doses are though varies significantly between individuals. And so uh, everybody wants a protocol, take this at this dose and all will be well. You can't do that, um, particularly when you're dealing with a chronic condition that has a whole host of compensatory reactions that have been uh, elicited to keep that human being alive mm -hmm. and functioning. So um, yes, high dose thymine can do remarkable things in a lot of instances. Mm -hmm. um, something you'll notice is it's not always a linear recovery process though and it's not always an easy recovery process while the cases you see in the hospital the acute cases where there's frank thymine deficiency typically in alcoholics or someone who's severely ill or you will often read that you know they were declining they were at death's door and then we gave them you know x hundred milligrams of thymine and within you know a couple hours they turned around you know and and while that is true um it doesn't tell the entirety of the story there's there's a lot more to it that has to be unwound that takes a significant amount of time and effort past that very acute phase mm. and uh most folks with chronic illness don't get to that acute phase, but they're still significantly ill and still require that type of care, but they have to do it outpatient and they have to do it over an extended period of time. Um, and it's, it's a long and arduous process. Right, okay. One thing that I guess confuses me is with, um, as with any nutrient or vitamin, if we high dose, then we're potentially offsetting the balance with its synergistic yes. nutrients. So is there a link there with um, potentially B2 acting as a 
Well, certainly, because B2 is another cofactor in, in the, the pyruvate dehydrogenase enzyme complex. And so as is alkalopoic acid and uh, magnesium is required whenever you take thymine to activate the thymine. So you need that. And then oftentimes, uh, once you get kind of that going, um, you start kicking these other enzymes into activity. And so it starts using up the other nutrients that you may have not been technically deficient in, but now it's using them. Whereas before everything was floating around and, and not being accessed, now they're using them. So you can become deficient in other of, of the, the B vitamins in particular, and, and certainly a lot of other vitamins. And so, um, it's never recommended to just take thiamine by itself. Mm. In fact, it's never recommended to just take one nutrient by itself. Right. Um, uh, one of the things that is commonly done uh, that is very popular that, that is, is high-dose magnesium, magnesium therapy. And while I agree that magnesium is critically important and so many people are deficient in, um, if you do high dose therapy, magnesium therapy, and you're deficient in, in thymine, you're actually going to shut the cycle down because it, yeah. And so at, at another one of the enzymes that thymine is important to, it's a rate limiting it. It will kick everything and shut it down. So mm -hmm. everything has to always be in a balance mm -hmm. as you do this. And that's why it's, it's never as easy as like the case studies suggest in acute care. In chronic care, it's an entirely different proposition. Right, that makes sense. Actually, I had a really great chat with um, Elliot Overton from... Yeah, I saw the, I didn't listen to it, I apologize, but I did see that you had talked to Elliot. <laughs> so. Yeah, we, we, had a, we had a brilliant discussion around um, some of the different forms of vitamin B1 and uh -huh. heavily around the TTFD form. So I'd love to hear your, you know, maybe what you've seen clinically or what you've researched around. So it's, it's yeah, so TTDF, TTFD is the, the most bioavailable form amongst the the currently available. I, I can't remember the name, but there's another one being tested synthetically right now that's supposed to be even more active, uh, but it hasn't come on the market. Um, but um, when you decide to supplement with thymine, you have to pick a formulation of the thymine. And there are different formulations with varying degrees of absorbability and potency. Mm. Um, TTFD and uh, bimpotymine being the, the most bioavailable, most absorbable because of their structure, they can cross uh, fatty layers. They're, they're described as being um, fat soluble they're not technically fat soluble they just yes they can get through the the membrane because they they don't need transporters um on that other scale on the other end the least um well absorbed but still useful are thymine, mono, thymine mononitrate and hydrochloride um and uh so those the fatigue study that you saw you the thymine hydrochloride, and I think they were taking two grams of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I was 1,800 to 2,000 milligrams of it. Um, and a dose like that 
would be comparable to because of the absorbability factor, uh, a lot less of the TTFD. Um, although some people take up to several grams of TTFD, but that's another study uh, story altogether. But I think um, while I appreciate the potency of TTFD and BIMPO timing, when we get to the chronic cases, there's a small percentage of them that can go directly to TTFD or BIMPO timing and do fantastically well and have remarkable results. The rest of them, the rest of the cases tend to have to titrate up first with a, a, a HCL assault and then cross over to uh, the others. Um, and sometimes they do have to start with single milligram doses of, of yeah, it's it's remarkable uh, how how um, disrupted their bodies become with chronic illness. Mm. Um, so that such that now can they get go to the hospital and if they were to get IV thymine, would that kickstart the enzymes sufficiently? Because obviously IV doesn't have to go first pass; it's a higher dose, and so it's not. It's more of it's absorbed and et cetera, et cetera. And you can be monitored for electrolytes, possibly. But there are no physicians who currently practice uh, that type of nutrient repletion relative to thymine, relative to, to chronic illness. Mm -hmm. The only context in which you can hope to get thymine in, in, in medicine is often only in acute care um in the er in you know uh, relative to you know chronic alcoholism sepsis you know some of these 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 dire positions um where it's recognized everyone else has to somewhat figure it out on their own mm. on their own unfortunately yeah i want to quickly share my experience with just regular um thymine hcl uh -huh. uh, when I was researching some of the benefits of that in the in the Ray, the Dr. Ray Pete forum, um, and I was researching, you know, some of the, the brain effects of uh, thiamine HDL, some of its effects in the brain in terms of uh -huh. helping with acetylcholine, lowering glutamate, helping with GABA and things. Yes. Like that. And I remember when I started using just a small amount, like a really small amount, I was breaking the 100 milligram uh, thiamine <laughs> HDLs into quarters. And I was just having that really small amount on its own. And this was, again, without any blood test. I was like, it's not going to cause any major harm at this dose. Um, and I remember, honestly, through my experimentation, I remember after one week, I took a look back on the week and I'm like, wow, I've had a really productive week. My mental clarity is improved. I just feel less fatigued and I feel like I tolerate carbohydrates a lot better. Um, so that was, that was my general experience at the start with just regular thiamine HCL. Yeah, and, and it is. It's a great energy boost. And if you, you have not been severely uh, damaged by, you know, pharmaceuticals and a number of other variables that that make your mitochondria function less than optimally, mm. um, the benefits are, are typically remarkable. And sometimes in there are cases where, you know, someone has has been severely damaged and they can turn it around relatively quickly. Uh, with the TTFD um, or the BIMPO, um, but oftentimes it's it's a longer process. Mm. Let's talk about 
some of the depleting factors. Um, obviously, some compounds found within coffee. Yes. Uh, can, can deplete. Coffee, tea, caffeic acid. Oh, gosh, I just wrote these a few earlier today. The tannins in the coffees and the tea and the polyphenols uh, deplete it. Um, alcohol obviously depletes it. Um, there is a long, long list of medications yeah. that by various medication, uh, various mechanisms deplete thymine. Uh, one of the largest or most popular is, is metformin, um, which... Um, you know, is given for type 2 diabetes, which ironically, most type 2 diabetes diabetics are thiamine deficient before they even begin. Um, and then they're given metformin. Metformin not only depletes uh, thiamine because it blocks the thiamine transporter, it blocks uh, folate and B12 and CoQ10. Um, and so in individuals that, that take uh, metformin, there's a, there's a lot of low-level mitochondrial damage that's going on that eventually accrues. Um, in rodent studies and in tissue studies, they, they show that um, skeletal muscle ATP output um, is reduced by about 50%. Um, uh, with metformin as, and so it's, it's, I just, I, I can't imagine functioning on 50% of your ATP. <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, that's, it's so anyway, so that's one major antibiotics. There's a whole host of antibiotics that, that do it. There's a, you know, the chemotherapeutic drugs do it. Um, the acid drugs, uh, antacid. Yeah. Yes. The PPIs do it, I would venture to say just about all drugs <laughs> will deplete thiamine and other nutrients by one mechanism or another. We certainly know that all pharmaceuticals damage the mitochondria by various mechanisms. And so it would make sense that the damage alone would deplete or increase the need for these nutrients. Mm. Um, but several of them de deplete them directly by a transporter and by a uh, uh, blocking enzymes and a variety of other things. Right. So those are the key variables. I think that 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 we just tend not to recognize in modern, uh, in modern the modern world. I mean, we we we. That's why it's it's such a, um, you know, it's it, we think that thiamine deficiency is rare and limited to only individuals in in the face of starvation, alcoholism. Um, you know, severe illness like with vomiting and diarrhea or severe illness in which the metabolism is just, you know, expedited and the demand is so great. Uh, but really, I think there's a lot of people walking around that don't even know it, that, that, that may have frank deficiency, but more than likely have, have kind of a subclinical or, or suboptimal level and are one crisis away from that full-on, yeah. you know, thymine deficiency illness. Mm. Um, uh, and you'll hear people say, you know, I was healthy until, and then you go back and you look at, well, what was your level of health? How many medications were you on? Blah, blah, blah. And it turns out that they were functioning. They weren't necessarily healthy. They were functioning yeah. until X. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Something that came to my mind is um, diagnostic testing for vitamin B1 deficiency. Do you want to look at, because I know we can sort of indirectly assess that someone may be B1 deficient. So what, what 
do people do now to assess? Well, unfortunately, the, the laboratory measures are, are spurious at best. Um, and uh, I just wrote a paper on that. I wish I had it in front of me. So, um, but the, um, the blood tests, uh, you can measure different analytes in the blood or different portions, different media of the blood. So plasma, urine, urine and serum are, are the least accurate uh, because they only contain about 10% of circulating right. thymine. Okay. Uh, you want the erythrocytes, which, and the leukocytes, uh, but the erythrocytes contain the, the 80, 90% of it uh, uh, combined. And so you want to measure the erythrocyte level of the most active form of thymine, which is thymine pyrophosphate. Um, and there are a couple methods that do that. They have, um, you know, uh, the, Sorry, blank. Um, so the the current laboratory methods that do the the TPP um, include uh, uh, the high profile liquid chromatography. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now there's an enzyme I was just writing that was HACL, and that's why it kept getting switched in my head. Um, that's the one in the peroxisome that is thymine dependent and, and metabolizes fatty acids. <laughs> The HPLC method is considered to be the most accurate because it was tested against the formerly most accurate one called the transketolase, the erythrocyte transketolase dose. Um, and it was found to be somewhat consistent with it. And because it's automatable, uh, uh, it is used more, more and more across the board. Uh, but the question is, is it really consistent? Is it really accurate? Does it to, to, um, detect deficiency? And there's a lot of evidence that it, unless it's severe deficiency, uh, it may not be able to detect those borderline cases. And moreover, um, reference ranges are not consistent between labs. And so you may be deficient in lab A, but perfectly healthy in lab B. Yeah. So you've got those problems, of it. and uh, erythro the erythrocyte transketolase test, uh, which is called a functional and indirect test, is no longer used except for experimentally and in you know university settings and research. But it measured the transketolase enzyme, the activity of the transketolase enzyme, which is thymine dependent, which downregulates with with um, uh, diminished thymine relative to by itself and then relative to the presence of thymine to see the change in activity. Um, and that was used for many decades as the gold standard, but it had some problems because it's, it's time consuming. Frankly, it's just time consuming. Yeah. Um, and there's a high degree of, of potential for user error, so mm. to speak. Um, and so it was replaced with HPLC. Mm. Um, and so, Yes, yeah, so you can get different results and you may not be um, identified as thymine deficient. Right. Um, and so oftentimes what people are forced to do is go by go clinically, symptomatically. Um, and if you have the symptoms and you suspect you are, then you start taking thymine and see what happens. Yeah. Um, if you, you're going to either get better or worse when you take thymine and in both cases, that's indicative of need. So, yeah. Yeah. so it's, um, yeah. So, yeah. So it's 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 difficult. It's difficult actually to get uh, practitioners to order a thymine test too. Yeah. Frankly, yeah. What about um, 
What about peripherally, like in terms of other deficiencies? We know like vitamin C, bleeding gums, anemia, red sclera, like anything peripherally? Oh, yeah, there's all kinds of things. So balance and, and gait are huge. Uh, you know, if you know, drunken sailor walk. Um, even subtle changes in your ability to walk that straight line is indicative of, of a thymine deficiency. Certainly fatigue is, is indicative. Uh, balance issues, tremors, uh, things like that. Uh, the more significant the, 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 the deficiency is, the more likely you're going to have oculomotor uh, eye nystagmus. Yeah. The, the bounce back on your eyes uh, and inability to focus and things like that. So there's a number of those that you can, again, that's clinical, symptomatically. They're, they're all there. Um, and I would suspect difficulty with, with sugar metabolism, um, cardiovascular symptoms, swelling in the peripheral limbs, um, pins and needles in the peripheral limbs. Um, historically, um, the Chinese called it, um, uh, was it spelled, it, it translated to leg qi uh, or qi, leg qi, leg um, it, because there was a disruption in the leg qi because the symptoms usually would begin in the legs, mm. you know, with, with wet beriberi, which is the cardiovascular one, you get the swelling with dry beriberi, you get no swelling, but you get peripheral neuropathies and such like that and you get disturbed gait and so um that was the part of the 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 descriptive process that they used uh the early onset of the disease and it started with the legs and as it moved centrally it it was considered to be more severe and death would become imminent once it reached the heart and in fact it is once uh now we're in modern times, we're able to offset that proposition of death because people do get some degree of thymine with any diet that they have, and they even get technically sufficient thymine. So we have chronic morbidity um, as opposed to that acute mortality. But mm -hmm. there does become a point in which it doesn't, yeah. it just, you can't handle it anymore. Right. You mentioned something around um, the tremors and the gates, and I want to sort of link this in with Parkinson's disease. Obviously, this is not medical advice for those that are treating Parkinson's patients, but let's. I know there was one pretty amazing study where they use like was it IV vitamin B one. Mm -hmm. Constantini, yeah, the Italian uh, who unfortunately uh, perished with COVID uh, last year. Um, but yeah, his his group of, of researchers did remarkable things with uh, Parkinson's patients uh, and high dose thymine, and they did uh, thymine HCL. Yes. Um, I think they did a combination of both IV and oral, um, and they were looking about fifteen hundred to two thousand milligrams per day uh, for the patients, and and there was a dramatic symptom just. Uh, you know, diminishment uh, relative to the thymine use that would come back when they stopped it. So it was not a deficiency in the sense that it was absent. It was a deficiency in the sense that the enzymes didn't work without a high dose of thymine constantly present. Wow. Which means that there would have been some things blocking there enzymes from functioning perhaps it, it could have been or it could have been problems with transporters or it could have been genetic you know underpinnings so there's genetic and epigenetic variables that will diminish the activity of 
various proteins involved in uh, the usage of thymine mm, or any nutrient. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about now like the perfect cocktail of nutrients to support mitochondrial function. I think one, one that I'm <coughs> really fell in love with recently, I don't know if you've looked into it, is D-ribose. You know, I haven't looked into it other than I had a, um, an individual who was thymine deficient and um, had a lot of other deficiencies as well, but severely thymine deficiency, took D-ribose and it sent him into a spiral. So it may not be the wonder. A spiral, a spiral as in like spiraling. Declined. Out. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. it declined significantly. Wow, okay. So, yeah, but I have not done the research on it. Mm. What about some of the other nutrients like um, carnitine and CoQ10? And things well, like- certainly, certainly necessary. It, I mean, well, to some people, they're necessary. I mean, they're necessary to everybody, frankly, but some people need to supplement them with them. Um, carnitine is particularly important in fatty acid metabolism, and you'll you'll see carnitine deficiencies um, quite frequently. They could often go with thymine deficiencies, uh, but carnitine deficiencies were they will have begun at a young age um, with muscle weakness and cramping and stuff like that, and they'll go undiagnosed for years and years and years. And and uh, as soon as the the um, individual finds it that was in fact carnitine, and they take carnitine and and it improves significantly. Um, you also see carnitine deficiencies in uh, women who, uh, pregnant women who develop hyperemesis, as well as thymine deficiencies. Everything goes with thymine, but carnitine deficiencies um, uh, are uh, impacted or are or, or indicative of. of are associated with hyperemesis, cyclic vomiting, and other vomiting-related type of symptoms, as is CoQ10. Um, And CoQ10 is interesting. Uh, There's a researcher by the name of Beatrice Golom who has done remarkable work with CoQ10 uh, supplementation and Gulf War syndrome. Um, And so... uh, that is is a critical component of getting that electron transport chain activated. But if you have a deficiency up above, you're never going to get to the ETC. So, you know, you have to think of it sequentially. And that's, again, why you have to come back to thymine. You know, no matter what you do to correct and what you need down below, if you don't correct the first step, then you're still going to, you know, you'll get improvement, but you won't fully uh, recover. Well, it's the same, the same sort of premise with like digestive disorders and digestive dysfunction is like, if they have bacterial overgrowth or certain things downstream, we need to correct the low stomach acid. If they have low stomach acid in the first place, right? Well, there's a lot of things you have to, and you have to correct the diet again. You have to go back. You what got them to that point? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I find again that diet is something like religion. People are very unwilling to change. Um, they're 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 set on whatever their diet is. And some of the diets um, people are set on are not just junk food diets. I mean that's an obvious one. But oftentimes there are people who are are undergoing a particular diet that is healthy for many people, but not healthy for them. 
Mm. You know, uh, you know, all of the vegetables. I mean, like tons and tons of vegetables, you know, and vegetable smoothies and that. that. If you have low thiamine, um, you're going to end up creating oxalate. And if you have oxalate, you're going to get all sorts of problems. So while that may be healthy for some, it's not healthy for, you know, everyone. Mm. Similar, you know, carnivore diet, big time, uh, you know, fat and great but if you have a carnitine deficiency you're not going to be able to to metabolize any of the fats from those meats and that's going to wreak havoc on your system mm. if you have a thymine deficiency you're not going to be able to do any of the fats um you know so there's there's um you know it's 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 there's a lot of diets that that could be healthy for some people but they're not healthy for everybody but once someone decides that this diet is healthy for them they're very reticent to change uh despite all evidence to the contrary yeah there's one point just quickly you brought up around oxalates um i want to i do want to ask your um expertise around how oxalates can damage the mitochondria or like the implications there if there's any research. So I, I haven't done a lot of work on oxalates uh, other than relative to thiamine uh, deficiency creating them. Um, but uh, oxalate management, I mean, oxalates, if they're not metabolized appropriately, store in the body and, and anything that stores in the body that shouldn't store in the body is going to damage the mitochondria. Mm. But that's a very surface level understanding. And so I apologize. That's just not my area other than, than broad, broad strokes. Yeah. On that one. I think the main, the main point you, to drive home there with the, with the diets is, um, yeah, I guess an individualized approach is most important and there's no blanket diet that's going to be yeah. appropriate for everyone. So it's, yeah. it's easy to understand. Other than avoid junk food. I mean, that's, that's really the, the that I think is a blanket uh, uh, recommendation is avoid the high processed, high carbohydrate, high trans fat, you know, high chemical foods. Yeah. Yeah. And all the um, preservatives and flavors and things like that. Yeah. So, all of those things. Yeah. If your food's not real food, then it's not doing you any good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, Chandler, was there any other, any sort of other areas you wanted to discuss maybe around what, you know, what you've recently researched, any other key topics you've been really passionate about lately? Well, I, I think I, we covered it. And I, I think, I, I think what I'm most passionate about is, is the fact that you cannot heal with medications. Um, while medications are certainly useful in, in certain instances and, and can be life-saving, they are, um, they don't treat the disease per se. They don't correct anything. They override things. Mm. And you've got to get to that root cause of what's causing, you know, of what's eliciting that reaction that is necessitating uh, the medication. Um, and so I think when you're dealing with chronic health issues, the idea that you can apply more and more medications or that if you just find the right medication, uh, all will be well is misguided. And I, I think I would like people to look at their mitochondria from the mitochondria outward 
and ask whether the mitochondria are functioning sufficiently and, and use that as your template to become healthy rather than simply blanketing the body with more and more medications. Mm, that's brilliant. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a powerful drive home message. <laughs> so Chandler, where can, where can my listeners um, connect with you or um, view some of your resources, your website? Where can they learn more? So there's a couple different places. So uh, as you may know, uh, with my colleague, Dr. Derek Lonsdale, uh, we wrote a book called Thymine Deficiency Disease, Dysautonomia, and High-Calorie Malnutrition that is available on Amazon or Elsevier, which is the publisher. Um, and that details it much mo- more coherently and <laughs> than I have portrayed on in this interview, um, all the mechanisms by which thiamine is needed in the body and all the, the pathways that go haywire when it's absent and the symptoms and et cetera. That is really your, your guidebook to understanding thyroid, uh, thyroid, thymine, uh, the mitochondria, the autonomic system, et cetera. So that's, that's one way. Um, I run a website uh, called Hormones Matter. Um, the name originated again from my background in mm-hmm. endocrinology and has evolved as such. Um, there we have uh, basically two types of articles. We do research and commentary, research analysis and commentary on research, um, and or uh, patient case stories uh, in, from patients that are struggling to patients that have recovered. Um, and because I think the struggle is, 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 is important. So my goal with that um, is one to offer a, a take on research that perhaps is not uh, your standard take. We dive deep into different research uh, areas. Uh, but two, to give individuals a voice uh, regarding their own health. And I think it's critically important to uh, build the knowledge base regarding the diversity of symptoms and illnesses that, that are experienced by the greater population many of which do not fit within the nice, neat little boxes, diagnostic boxes that we uh, try to fit them into. Um, And most of these individuals um, uh, have been so severely damaged by Western medicine that I think it's important for them to be able to tell what has happened, what's going on, and... uh, hopefully drive research into these diseases or these disease processes in a different way than we do uh, that is confined to current diagnostic parameters. So long-winded story, uh, research analysis, case histories. Um, and the case histories are written by the patients themselves. So it's called Hormones Matter. That's where you get it. On Facebook, we have, well, I have the Facebook page for Hormones Matter, but we also have a private Facebook group called Understanding Mitochondrial Nutrients. It's a private group um, that basically discusses nutrients and recovery. Um, we have both researchers, physicians, and patients, and there's interactions on any number of topics uh, related to recovering health. It does not give medical advice, so if you're looking for medical advice, that's not a, a place to go. But we do discuss, you know, different uh, pathways to recovery. 
Awesome. So those are the primary ways. Cool. Well, I'll make sure I'll make sure to leave those links um, in the show notes. And um, yeah, I think what you're doing is is something great, and I really respect I really respect your work, and I've learned a lot from you. And I know my listeners today would have would have gained a little bit of insight into you know the work you've published. And um, yeah, I just want to say massive thanks for coming on the show. Okay. Very good. Thank you for having me. Great. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.